Those at home, join us as well as we go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 for a continuation of what we're doing in the book of Colossians, verse by verse. You may have seen this article. It came out just about two or three weeks ago. A lady in Michigan, all of a sudden, they called the paramedics. They came in. They worked on her for a half hour. And then they, after they were done, they said, she's dead. She needs to be taken away to a funeral home. They took her body to the funeral home. And there, when they were beginning, ready to begin their work on her, all of a sudden she started breathing. They got the BMTs to come back. They resuscitated her. And the fearful thing that people had been saying along with this article, could you imagine? Could you imagine that happening? That somebody had supposedly passed away and they really weren't dead? It happened for an individual in 1915, this gal by the name of Essie Dunbar, that she was an individual who had different types of seizures, and she had an epileptic seizure that was very serious. They called the doctor. The doctor came. He examined her thoroughly, said she's dead. And so back in those days and in that area, they would bury within hours. They communicated with her sister who was out of the area and she said, please, please wait. I can't get there for a period of time. Wait at least a day or until I can get there. They waited. And then they decided that they can't wait any longer. They did the service. But as they were lowering the casket into the ground and then ready to start shoveling on, the sister showed up. The sister came and she was insistent that they bring the casket up, that she'd be able to see her sister one last time. They agreed because of her forcefulness and because of her determination. They brought the casket up. They unscrewed the lid. And maybe it was the fresh air. I don't know what. But when they took the lid off, all of a sudden, Essie moved. And within two minutes, she was sitting up and talking to her sister. Now, that would be an odd conversation. The woman lived for another 40 years later. Can you imagine? Can you imagine burying something that isn't yet dead? Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he's going to encourage them to do some burying. And he's going to say, hey, listen, some of you think it's living, but it's really dead. And you need to get this thing buried. It's in chapter 3, starting with verse 5. And as we look at the text, let's make sure we understand exactly what he's talking about. He's talking, I've entitled the message, Burying Bad Behaviors. But in this course of what he's doing, Paul has already mentioned in this book, in the first two chapters, he's talked about making sure Christ is preeminent. That Jesus has to be exalted above everything else, and he's given two reasons why. He's said because Jesus is completely God and because Jesus has completed you and me. And then what he does in chapter 3 is he develops a whole section that's very practical. That's built upon the idea of, hey, listen, because of what Christ has done, this is how you should live. And in chapter 3 and 4, he gets very practical. He talks about how we work, how we treat our employees, how we speak, how husbands and wives should treat one another, how parents should talk to kids, vice versa. He even starts off with a very practical subject of burying bad behaviors. It starts in verse 5. You look at the beginning of verse 5 and begins in my Bible, the King James, that I'm using. It says, mortify therefore. The therefore is there for a reason. And when we see the therefores, it's basically saying, because of what I just said, you need to do this. So you and I, before we go any further, we have to remind ourselves, what did he just say? What did he just talk about? In the previous four verses, the transition from the theological to the practical, we looked at it last week, and he talked about these things. He talked about that idea of what God has done for you. We talked about it at length last week, that God has risen us, that God has quickened us, that we were dead in sin, and what God did is he gave us spiritual life. He made us new creatures in Christ. Then he talked about in those few verses that idea of what God is doing for us right now. And he mentioned that idea that right now God is sitting at, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ready and able to minister to us from his place of authority, his place of power. But then he added as well, he has hidden us. In Christ, in God. That is, he's keeping us secure. He's providing. He's protecting. He's got a reservation for us that will not end so that we can be in heaven. Then he talked about in verse 4 what he's going to do for us in the future. He's going to come. When Christ shall appear, you shall appear with him. That idea that we have that reservation in heaven, that we are going to be changed. We are going to be given our new bodies. We're going to have a new life. All of that put together, all of a sudden we come to a therefore. Therefore, you need to do something. Now, I remind you, 
He had said in that previous four verses, we need, to there, we need to make sure we seek those things which are above, which would include this idea, seeking the blessings, seeking the answer prayers, seeking what glorifies Christ, seeking his help and his direction. But then he adds this, verse 5, therefore also mortify your flesh. Mortify your members, talking about our bodies. And he has a whole section on burying bad behaviors that are dealing with, we are dealing with because of our bodies. Now, let me dissect a little bit of what he says. Mortify. That idea, mortify, is that idea of you need to consider this is dead. You need to consider this to be powerless. This coincides with what is written in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, that we are supposed to reckon our members dead. That we are dead to sin. That idea that we have been saved means we no longer have to be living under the power of sin. Under the fear of sin. We're not damned by it anymore. Because once we ask Christ as our Savior, we are given eternal life. We are given complete forgiveness. So there's no damnation. But as well, we are not to be dominated by sin. It's not supposed to be controlling us. It's not supposed to be... We're not supposed to have addictions. We're not supposed to have these struggles that many of us do. God's design is that we would be holy as he is holy. But we still have a problem. If we are dead to the sin, then why are we still dealing with it? Because we have a body. We have this member, the flesh, that still has desires, that has yet to be changed. Our bodies are not yet glorified, so they still give us problems. They still give us the temptations. We still have the thoughts, the responses. We still have the attitude issues. We still want to hold grudges. We still want to think things or be drawn towards things we ought not. That's the reason why some are struggling with addiction to drugs or alcohol or whatever, you know, cussing, cursing, anger. That's why some struggle with not, you know, not viewing things that are prohibited like porn. It's, it's a problem. Why? Because of the bodies we have. The bodies that are still tainted by sin, our members. And he says you need to reckon that the power of this body is no longer dominating in your life. You need to mortify. Your spirit is alive, created in Christ. You have the power to overcome any and all temptation and sin in your life. But sometimes we give in to it. Okay? And we allow our flesh to have control. So we get angry, we scream, we yell, we carry on. Or we use language we ought not to use in a moment. Why? We give in. We give in. But if we were to cooperate with God's Spirit, and I'm going to highlight that word cooperate. If we were to cooperate with God's Spirit that is in us, that's given us new lives, we can have victory. We could control our tongues. We could control our tempers. We could control the thought process a whole lot better. Now, let me define this. What do we mean by cooperating with God? Okay, what I mean by that is several things. Doing what God says. Say no. Say no to the temptation. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Cooperate with God. Get into the word of God. Jesus prayed. He says, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Okay, so get the word into you so that you're cooperating with the Spirit of God. Do this. Do the word of God. Do exactly what it tells you to do. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed, doing the word of God. Do this. Use the word of God when all of a sudden you're tempted. That's that whole idea where he says in the scriptures, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So that like when Christ was tempted, we would have the word of God to resist the devil. Cooperating with God. Avoiding those people, those situations, those circumstances that, that all of a sudden help the temptation become broader and stronger. Put ourselves in a place where we are making no provision for the flesh. Cooperating with God. Pray ahead of time. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Literally, lead us away from temptation. We got to be praying before the temptation comes. We got to be trusting in Christ because in Christ we can do all things who strengthens us. But that's all there and still we struggle. Still we give in to the temptations. And he says to us, listen, you got to mortify your members. You got to consider them dead. Let me just give you several thoughts that strike before we get into the text in depth. That means sin is still a problem for us. 
is still an issue for a lot of us in this room. For all of us in this room who are born again. If it wasn't a problem, he wouldn't be addressing it. In fact, mortify literally means, you may want to mark your Bible, begin to mortify. You need to take some, this action of doing something, which leads me to this idea. It's a choice. It's a choice. We have a choice to give in or not to give in. We, we choose whether to cooperate with God or to go along with what our fleshly desires are. In fact, let me make a statement. Okay, and try to reiterate this and emphasize it. We are not powerless victims. This is the modern thought in America and in psychology and even in Christian circles at times. The idea that, that you know what, we just can't help it. We can't help it. Uh, we're going to give in to certain sins and they're okay because... And, and people give these excuses. People will say, I can't help it. I wouldn't be this way. I wouldn't be an angry person. I wouldn't be somebody that has perverted thinking. I wouldn't be a person that is struggling with pure thoughts. I wouldn't be a person who, who you know, is, is unable to forgive if it weren't for my genetics. Don't we hear this a lot today? That immorality is excused because it's in somebody's genetic makeup? homosexuality, adultery, immorality, pornography. You can't help it. It's probably in your genetic makeup. Not according to this text. And even if it were in your genetic makeup, you have responsibility to say no. Let's go a step further. People blame their parents. That if it wasn't for my parents, then I, I would be a sweeter person. I'd be a kinder person. But my parents, it's just, they just made me into an angry individual. What somebody did to you. Somebody... Somebody harmed me. Somebody abused me. Therefore, that's why I am what I am today, and I can't help it. Or, or this, it's my heritage. I come from a certain ethnic group. Therefore, because I'm Irish, I have a temper. Or I have red hair. This one I'm, I have no problem with. Okay. okay, I have red hair, therefore I'm an angry person. You can't excuse sin that way. But is it done? Sure. Sure, some will say, okay, the only reason I get angry is because other people. They push me too far. Or it's because of my economic status. If I had better education, if I hadn't grown up in, in poverty, then I would be normal. But because I, I, I have these addictions, it, it, it's all because of my lack of money. I have an addiction because I didn't get educated the way others got educated. So poor me, I'm a druggie because... I grew up in a poor section of town. It's excuse. Now, granted, let, let's be honest about it. Do these things contribute? Sure. Do parents contribute to our makeup? Does genetics? Absolutely. Does our background? Our economic? Yes, they do. But they do not excuse bad behavior. He says mortify the bad behavior. So we look at this and we say, okay... There's a guy in the scriptures that is a classic example of overcoming a dysfunctional background. Joseph, did he come from a normal home? Okay, his home. The several moms in the home, that in itself creates a problem. The several moms were at one another's neck. His dad had a favorite favorite wife which created a problem his dad showed favoritism towards the kids and created by elevating Joseph to a spot created some of the animosity his brothers attacked him physically they threw him in the pit they were going to kill him they sold him as a slave he, now the, Joseph was abused Joseph by our standards today was from a dysfunctional family but when temptation comes a knocking and the woman says, who is married, says, come and be a sexual partner with me, he says, how can I sin against God? He could have excused it and said, oh, well, I'm in a bad spot. Might as well, you know, what, what's the difference? And then, and then later on, when he's forgotten after he's put in prison, he's falsely accused and in prison, he gets forgotten by the people that he helps. And then when he gets elevated to the place where he is in charge and he sees his brothers, he has an opportunity to seek revenge. It would be sin against God. You can, you can overcome your backgrounds. 
You can overcome those influences by burying bad behaviors. Let me give you another thought here. By saying to us, bury the bad behaviors, mortify the flesh, he's telling us to take drastic steps. We've got to do something. We can't just sit passively by and do nothing when we're tempted. When we're struggling with a besetting sin or an attitude or, or a spirit towards somebody else. We've got to take some type of action. In fact, the text tells us to consider this as dead. Consider your temper as dead. Well, if I'm going to consider my temper as dead, then I'm going to consider it something foul. Something I want to get rid of. You don't keep dead pets around, do you? You don't keep rotting food around, do you? You get rid of it. In the fact, there's a second command that goes with it. Look at verse 8. Put off, and it's literally like take off this garment, this sinful practice, this gossip, this uh, sensuality. Get it out of your, discard it. Put it far from you. Take some action. Okay. You got sprayed by a skunk this week. Would you take some action? What would you do with the clothes? You'd get rid of them. I, I certainly hope you wouldn't show up in church with the skunk-filled clothes. You wouldn't be allowed in your home if you did that. You would say, i got to put it off. Something that's stinky. I ask myself, what parent would let their children do this? Play in the mud. Shelly, I am so appalled that you would do this to my grandchildren. Uh, not, not to embarrass my daughter. Okay. But don't you just look at them and say, oh, I want to give them a big hug after they play in the mud. I bet you you put them in the car without taking off their outfits. No. You, you got rid of the outfit before you let them go into your house? You didn't put them in bed in the same outfit? No, no, no. Okay. You put it off. As cute as it is, as I got to tell you, when I saw the picture, it was like, I want to be there. As much fun as it is, there's a spot where you say, hey, listen, it's got to go. The dirty clothes have got to go. Well, that's what he's telling us in this text. That's what Jesus said. Take a drastic, do something. Remember when he's preaching? And Jesus says, hey, listen, if your right eye offends you, stumbles you, causes you, puts you into a spot where you're, you're, you're giving in to temptation, then what you should you do? You should do something drastic. Pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, if it's a problem, cut it off. Now, we all know what he's talking about. He's not talking about literally dissecting your body. Because even if you did, you could still be struggling with the temptation. He's talking about, in a picture form, take some drastic action. Do something decisive to resist, to avoid, to change your attitude, your words. Take action. Let me add a couple other thoughts. This passage clearly says, when it says mortify and put off, it clearly says this has to be done by you personally. The verb here that's used for mortify is plural. All of you. All of you need to do something. And then the second verb that he uses, he uses a middle voice, which means you put off yourself. You, though it's plural, you've got to do this for yourself. Somebody else can't do it for you. Somebody can't change your attitude. Somebody can't, for you, get rid of the smutty stuff. And so he's very clear, you've got to take personal action, all of you believers. Because all of you believers in Colossae, this is a battle. This is a struggle. This is a difficulty. We all have an old man, an old nature, an old body that gives us a problem. And until we're raptured and glorified, we still have to deal with it. Can I add one other thought? There is none of this to be tolerated. We're going to look at some things, and some of you might look and say, well, that one isn't as bad as that one. Uh-uh. Everything he's going to list, and he gives us two grocery lists here, everything he talks about in the next few verses, he says, in fact, he even says in verse 8, he says, all of these. None of this is to be tolerated. Okay, we're in COVID era. And in COVID era, I all of a sudden have become concerned about my yard for the first time in all the years. To me, I didn't care about my yard other than it grew, I, grew I, I cut the lawn, and I don't care. Whatever is out there that's green, it was okay. It could be moss, it could be green mud, it could be algae, it could be grass, it could be crabgrass. I didn't care. 
So now we come into COVID era and it's like, okay, we can't do as much as, you know, the visiting and different things. So I sat in the backyard and said, okay, what are these things? And Tony said, you got crabgrass. Oh, okay. He says, you got to get rid of it. You mean I got to pull it? I got to do something for my lawn? Yeah, and he was telling me how I should probably put fertilizer, put stuff out there. And I, my response was, I'll pray about it. <laughs> and so as I prayed about it, the crabgrass spread. Do you realize that some of you are doing the exact same thing? I am tempted by, so I'm just going to pray about it. It doesn't work. You've got to take some decisive action. You can't be tolerant. You've got to do more. I'm glad you're praying about it, but do something. Do something. And in this text, he's going to list out several specific sins that the Christians are involved in. In fact, we're going to divide it this way for the rest of our study. Verses 5 through 7. Hang on now. Okay? Don't get embarrassed. Some of you, your ears will even perk up when I say it. Sensual, sexual sins. He's going to give us a list of them. And then he's going to give us another list of other sins. But this one he starts off with. At the very beginning, he first deals with sexual sins. What does that tell you? Believers still struggle. Believers in good churches still battle with their thoughts. In this area of sexuality. And it's so easy to do because it's private. Nobody would know. Nobody sees. But it's the very first area that he jumps on. He says there is some bad behavior when it comes to sexuality. Now, okay, let's, let's make sure we all understand. God is not against sex. In fact, he's pro-sex. The word of God encourages it. It tells married couples, don't stop meeting one another's needs and pleasures. And so sex is great. It's wonderful. It's designed by God, but within a marital setting. Very clear. And it's appropriate. But that's not what's happening in this verse. In this verse, he's going to list things that are outside of that area. That are done by single people. Done by teenagers. Done even by some married people. And he's going to list several of them. He says, these have got to be put out of your life. You've got to take off that muddy, dirty sexual temptation. You've got to mortify it. Consider it dead. Don't let it dominate you. You can overcome these things. And he gives us a list. He starts off with fornication. As you look at verse 5, it's very clear. Fornication. The word is pornea. Immediately you know what word we get out of that. Pornea. We get porn. Anything along with it. Now this is the umbrella word. This is the word that is any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Uh, in the scriptures, it can be, it can be dealing with um, homosexuality, adultery, prostitution. It's any one of those things. But it's this broad word that deals with immoral acts. Stop. Get it out. Don't tolerate it. Then he deals with uncleanness. Uncleanness is this idea of a filthy mind. Uncleanness has the idea of fantasizing, imaginations, thinking through and in your mind, all of a sudden going through certain sexual acts or activities. So now he's dealing with not only a physical act, but a mental act. In fact, he goes a little bit further. He calls it inordinate affection. This is dealing with depraved passions. Erotic behavior. It's the idea of uncontrollable desires that are so strong just for personal gratification. You and I would basically say it's selfish sex. Oh, right away, I know some things that this would apply to. Right away, that means that anybody who touches, molests a child, they, they, they are perverted to the point of selfishness to harm somebody. Anybody in a dating relationship that insists that their partner go through a sexual act with them for their own personal gratification, that, that's there. In fact, this applies to married couples where the one party is insistent and is all about their own gratification and doesn't care about the partner. He adds to it this, 
Evil concupiscence. Isn't that a fun word to say? Evil concupiscence. I like saying it. I have no idea what it means. Okay. Evil concupiscence is basically seeking and to be satisfied physically, sexually, in a way that's forbidden by the word of God. It's probably what Jesus is talking about when he was speaking to the Pharisees, and he, to the crowd, excuse me, to that entire crowd that was there. And he said to them, you have heard of old, you shall not commit adultery, Old Testament. And he's quoting it. He, but then he adds, he says, but I say unto you, if any man were to look, to look in such a way that he's lusting after a woman, he's committed adultery in his heart. Evil concupiscence. Where it is the formulation of, okay, you look, and now you start imagining, and you start picturing, and you start thinking how this would work. You see that, that, that celebrity, and all of a sudden you think about that celebrity. Wouldn't it be cool if I and that celebrity would get together? physically. You see a billboard and it starts all of a sudden the imagination running. Now, the, the idea here is this is where he goes with it. He says, if this is happening, you got to cut off the right hand. You take drastic measures. The idea that we want to make sure we understand is, okay, the first unavoidable glance. We're not saying, oh, you're depraved because all of a sudden this thing all of a sudden came up in front of you on the commercial or on the TV. It's what you do after that. It's how you handle it. Do you continue to look? Do you continue to imagine? Do you continue to look at that classmate and you have all kinds of thoughts? And wouldn't it be cool if we could go parking together? That's what he's talking about here. The imagination, the fantasizing, the carrying it through. Evil concupiscence. Then he adds one more here, which seems odd to me. Covetousness, which is idolatry. We, we understand what covetousness is. It's not being content. It's wanting more and more. And typically, when we think about covetousness, we think about it in the realm of money, things, possessions, clothing, you name it. Why is that stuck in the middle of a paragraph that's dealing with sexual things? Ah, interesting. He uses this very same word in another text that's dealing with sexual activity he talks about it in first thessalonians chapter four where he's talking about you need to possess your body properly it's the will of god even the sanctification of your bodies and when it comes to your physical relationships do not defraud it's the same word for covetousness do not take something that belongs to somebody else that isn't yours well that would clearly say you don't take somebody's virginity away you don't take somebody's purity away. Very clearly, that makes sense then in this text. That all, and, and as well, do you remember what he says in Exodus? Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. Something that you're not satisfied with what God's given, so you've got to be in your mind. And the word of God is very clear. This is idolatry. Do you realize what this text is saying? That when we give in to our desires in this area of sensuality, we are putting sex ahead of God. And that's a form of idolatry. Now, we never hear that one preached, do we? We never hear that evil thinking, lustful thinking. We never hear that porn is idolatry. But that's what the Word of God says. And then what he does is he doesn't stop. He goes to the next phrase, and you've got to catch it. The next phrase is, it's, it's as if he needs to clarify, for your my sake, and but we know better, but he says, for which thing's sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience in the which you also walked sometime in the past when you lived in them. He gives us, again, he's already told us the reasons that we should mortify is because of all that Christ has done. But then he adds two other reasons. He makes it clear in that verse that, and again, God isn't against sin, uh, sex, but God is against immorality so much so he punishes it the wrath of god and the children of disobedience that when we say okay it's okay we love each other premarital sex is okay as long as we love each other but this passage is warning and saying listen there's chastisement from god for that 
God doesn't stand by and tolerate it the way we tolerate it. God says of his children, of believers, there could be a form of discipline. In the fact, he says, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. We understand that typically that would be unsaved. But that whole idea is even in, uh, emphasized in First Thessalonians, where that passage about defrauding a fellow believer because the Lord is the avenger of all such. Okay, nobody knows. Nobody knows there's an involvement in porn. God does, and God will punish it. I know that this is unpopular because now I sound like a, a hate theologian. But the word of God is clear. God disciplines his children because he loves them. And he will discipline these types of sins that are very private, that nobody knows about, that we say it's okay. And then he gives another reason, by the way. Oh, I I wanted to add this. In uh, Hebrews, marriage is honorable, bed undefiled, but whoremongers, adulterers, judgment. There's going to be discipline. He gives the second reason in verse 7. He says, this is the way you used to walk. You did this in the past, but now you're changed. You're a child of God. You, you live differently. You have a better lifestyle. Why would you go back to that? That, that? that is something that's in your old ways, in your past, and it's not becoming you now. Okay, don't you hate when people pull up pictures from when you were a kid? Okay, now these aren't, this is not my picture, okay. But you look and you go, haircuts. My kids hate when we pull out their fifth, sixth grade picture, that bowl haircut, you know. And say, oh, that's gross, that's gross. So I'm thinking, I grew up in the 70s, okay. This was stylish. So I went to magazines. This is stylish from the 70s. Isn't that wonderful clothing? Aren't those things that you look and say, I want to order one of those. That's something that's cool. When I was a teen, this was it. This was real cool. It was like, yeah, we're going to be, and I know, I, I want to say it, I'll be one of the Brady Bunch. We were real groovy back then, okay? And, and we, you know, we wore that. But I got to tell you, if next Sunday I showed up dressed like that, <laughs> you wouldn't listen. You would laugh the whole time. And you say, that is really old. That doesn't fit. Well, neither does the behavior in this verse. It doesn't fit you anymore. You are past that. You are a child of God. Very clearly. So he's dealt with sexual sins, and then he deals with social sins. The next couple verses. The next couple verses, he says, and also put off all of these. And I've already mentioned what this is. He's going to get a list of behaviors, and he's going to talk about them. Now, these are the social sins that we find acceptable. That's what G. Campbell Morgan meant. He meant that people who are in churches, we get offended. We say, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, adultery, homosexuality, you know, child molestation. Bad, bad, bad. But we don't talk about not forgiving somebody. We accept gossip. We say it's okay to be bitter. We say that it's okay to tear down other people. It's socially acceptable. Not according to the word of God. Put these things off and not just one of them. You can't go through and say, well, this one I don't think is that bad. Listen, the list that he gives us, it's all bad. Every one of them. And you are to take decisive action to put some of these that you're struggling with out of your life. And so let's do the list. What's he talking about? He's talking about anger. We understand there is a time and a place that anger is appropriate. Jesus got angry at the, at the corruption of the temple. Be angry, yet sin not. Is there, is there a, a, a stamp of approval upon righteous indignation? Yes. But that's not what this, verse, this idea is about. This idea is the idea of you having an ongoing ha- anger issue. You... Having an ongoing problem with somebody that you almost want revenge against them. Then he adds wrath. This is that you know, all of a sudden white hot anger. All of a sudden you just lose it. And just for and it happens, whatever the reason, you just yell, scream. You just you got pushed over the edge by your kids, by your spouse, by somebody. And he says, even though it happened, you need to correct it. Let me see if I can illustrate this way. Driving. Have you ever been cut off by somebody? 
Have you ever cut somebody off? They cut off, cut, uh, you know, you, it, in it, you, you didn't mean it. You did something and it was a dumb move and somebody else didn't like it and they're blaring that horn. You see them, you know, just carrying on and they wave at you, but it's not this for a wave. It's other gestures. And, and you look and you say, oh my word, that person's having conniption back there. You know, and they're carrying on. And I see this at times and I've seen Christians do this and I can't help but go, wow, what did their kids learn? Okay, so that white-hot anger. Revenge is that idea that it's not enough for you just to blow up and to scream and to yell at, and they can't hear you, what good that does. But you're doing it. Re, the, the idea that, of anger is now you have to follow them. You have to do something back to them. You have to get close and you have to let them know you're mad and use your vehicle to teach them a lesson. That's those two types of angers. He says, that, that's got to stop. And by the way, talking to believers in this text is saying, believers struggle with this type of stuff. He goes on and he says, malice. Malice is the idea that you just have an issue with somebody. And you don't want that person to be blessed. Okay, I've got an anger issue. And since you're sitting in the front row, Barb, you volunteered. And so I've got an anger issue with Grandma Barbie. And so therefore, she says, hey, I had an answer of prayer this week. You want to hear about it? No. Oh, man, God was so good. Why her? I'm really glad that God's blessing Barb. Do people ever do that? Yeah. Yeah. Do people ever say, you know, hey, isn't Grandma Barbie sweet? It's so nice, and she's such a sweetheart. You don't know her like I do. You, you don't want anything nice to be said about them. That's this. That's malice. Then he goes on, he talks about blasphemy. We all know what blasphemy is. It's, it's all of a sudden doing something against God. It's not always against God. Blasphemy has the idea of causing hurt, trying to harm somebody. This, this isn't harming God. This is harming another person. How do you harm another person? How do you create hurt with your speech? Name-calling? Gossip? Abuse of speech? Get it out of your life. Make sure you're not doing it. Then he adds to it filthy communication. Filthy communication is that which is foul, that which is dirty, curse, that which he... You know, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when all of a sudden somebody tells that coarse, dirty joke. It's embarrassing when, you, when somebody who's a believer starts going off on a lingo of cussing. It's shameful. It's inappropriate. It's, it's wrong to have the sexual innuendos in your conversations. You know, there is something that has to be stated with this one. It is not manly to curse. Our culture says, oh yeah, let's throw in a few of those adjectives and let's make sure because then that really makes you know, the, the 13-year-old, he's a real man because he can use God's name in vain and cuss. That's sin. That's wrong. And by the way, let me add this. Any dad that teaches their son that is wrong. It's inappropriate. The Word of God is clear that he says, hey, listen, you've got to stop. And that's what the Word is. Mark your Bible. Stop lying. Implied, Christians are lying one to another. It's got to stop, God says. What does that include? That includes telling a deliberate falsehood. That includes giving and creating a wrong impression. That includes the idea of making a commitment that you have no intention of keeping. That includes the idea of you made a commitment and you don't follow through. That includes the idea of distorting facts to support your point of view. That would include the idea of exaggerating. Okay, you're going to make sure everybody in your family knows how macho you are, how, how strong you are, so you come home and you distort what happened in a conversation at work. You exaggerate it so all your family goes, oh, wow, and it's not true, or it's so exaggerated. That includes the idea of telling partial truths. Just to deceive. That includes withholding information that you're, you're asked to be giving. Such as like tax documents. 
stop lying. Now, he does the same thing in this text. After he's listed it, he says, here's why. I've already said what, what should happen, therefore, verses 1 through 4. I gave you the sexual ones and then gave you some warnings. Now I'm talking about the social sins. And he's going to make another why statement. Notice the next verse. The next verse he says, Lie not one to another, seeing that next phrase, that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge. And we'll pick up a little bit more but next week. But just for your sake, seeing you have once for all put off the old man his deeds and once for all put on the new man. What's he talking about? You got saved. You repented of those sins. You even stood up in a baptismal service and said, I have died and I am going to walk in newness of life. You made those claims. This is what God, you said, has done for me. And now you're going back to it? Makes no sense. You are a child of God who's saved and you are to be a new creature in Christ in how you think in private and what you say in public. And even if it means you have to take some drastic steps, you do it. Now, you as a church have asked us to do something a few years back. And it was, it, it was asked not because there was any questions, but it was an appropriate thing to ask. Let's do an audit. Let's have some peoples come in and examine how we conduct everything in the week-to-week, daily basis. How the deacons are conducting and handling the finances. The checkbooks. And it's appropriate. I want to turn the table for a second. I want you to take an audit of your life. What you did this week. You examine some things. You examine how you spoke to your family members at home. You ask, did you exaggerate things this week? Did I do that? You say, what, how did I respond to the kids? Did I yell at them in anger, in a white outburst? How, how, do you, how do you respond to people who upset you? What did you say to them about them? How did you talk about your parents, your brothers and sisters this week? What did you say as far as joking this week? How did you talk about God? Did you use his name in vain? Let's bring it even further. It it amazes me how believers can say, I'll be careful what I say with my lips, but it's okay whatever I type. I wouldn't say those words out loud, but I'll write them for the public, all the public to see. This is still communication. This is still supposed to be Not perverted, not showing anger, not not displaying revenge. How'd you do this week? How would God say you did this week? Let's make it where where, what would God give you for a grade? So what do we do with it all? Where, Where do we go from here? Walk out and say, amen. All those people who do those bad things, yeah, give it to them. No, no, let, let's, 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 let's be honest. You and I, according to this text, need to take whatever steps are needed in our life, and our home, to promote greater purity. Even if it means drastic steps. We have got to focus on more purity, according to this text. Because it's a battle. It's a struggle. We need to bury the bad behaviors when it comes to the private sins, the sensual ideas. We need to avoid any suggestive magazines, films that feed the old man, that feed those sensual appetites. It may mean this. It may mean you need to curb some of the TV programming, some of the movies. And I'm picking on TV not because I think we should get rid of them and just everybody should, nobody should have them. I pick on them because they're a problem. We watch a lot of TV as Americans. Our culture, more than any other culture, is given to TV. We've got more of them than most anybody in the world. And so when we say, okay, let's just take, we're talking about attitudes towards other people. Our kids by the age of 18 in the current culture, they are exposed to violent treatment of other people on an average of two and a half murders every day on TV that they would see on average. By the way, is there any question why there is so much violence? 
If minds are being flooded with this, as you think, so we become. Well, let's talk about the sexual attitudes. They did, the American Psychological Association did the survey last year. And they were trying to figure out why is it that there's so much teenage sexuality. 75% of the teens responded in this survey, of those who responded, said the thing that was the most influential is the TV programming. It looked so normal and like it was the next thing to do. In fact, on TV programming in 2019, one in ten shows portrays the complete sexual act in some forms of suggestion or portraying it. In that programming, 10% involved a couple who just met for the first time. 9% were those who were teenagers. Is it any wonder that any teen with, a, with a, any kind of normalcy would look and watch TV? If they watch and see all this kind of stuff, they would say, Hey, listen, the next thing we got to do when we date is this is the normal thing. Yeah, and then on top of it, we have the majority of American teens don't even have accountability when watching TV. Maybe you need to take some drastic measures in your family to protect the purity of your family. Maybe, maybe what you need to do is become more accountable with your devices. And just say, okay, we, I, I, I need to make sure that whatever computer I'm using, it's, I, I'm, I'm accountable to somebody. It's not in private, it's in a public domain of the house. Maybe you've got to take a drastic measure that, that if there's inappropriate conversations, you stop them. I've dealt with several couples over the years that there's a little bit of tension at home. He or she are at work, and they found somebody who understands them. My wife doesn't understand, but one of my coworkers, she is different. She is so kind. She sees nothing but the good of me. She's not like my, my, my wife who, she, who says I'm this, that, and the other thing. She just admires me. Yeah, well, you marry her for a while and the admiration will go away. <laughs> Reality sets in. So what do you do in those situations? You stop that conversation. You cut off that. I remember telling one man, if, if that problem, you get on a different shift of work so you're not by that person. Oh, I can't do that. I get a dollar more an hour working in that shift, but it's costing you your marriage. You, you break off relationships. You're, you're dating. You like them. But the pressure is on. The pressure is on. The pressure is on to be physical. Break off the relationship. Break it off. If you're, if you're dating, you make sure you put yourselves in spots where you are accountable. Set limits. You do something. And then when it comes to our attitudes and our speech, take drastic measures. Such things as, okay... You know, here's, here's something novel. If you're upset, say nothing. Don't, you know, avoid the foul words. You say, oh, they just come so naturally. Well, unnaturalize them. Create a new habit. Stop saying the cuss words. Just don't say anything. You know, you're working there, and I'm pulling the weeds, and I'm trying to stick the, the, pro, the prickly thing. I don't even know what the device is called to get the crabgrass out. So I stick it in, and I miss, and I get my finger. I don't have to say anything. You don't. Yeah, I know what things I want to say, but I'm not supposed to say those things. You know, avoid the people who feel your, your, your anger. Somebody's going to say, oh, you just told me to get rid of my spouse. No, that's, you know, that's, no, no. But those outside sources, hey, do any of you get really upset listening to the radio news or the TV? If it really upsets you, you know what you should do? Stop. You say, oh, well, I don't want to be ignorant. Yes, you do. If it's going to cause you to sin, stay, stay ignorant. Don't excuse it. Don't excuse it. We don't need to listen to the same old, same old stuff that just frustrates us. 
Be informed, but stay away from it. Turn off the TV. Turn off the radio. Turn on something that will be beneficial to you. Do something more productive. Again, this is so... We live in a society that everybody should comment all the time. Say nothing. Say nothing. Just learn that I don't have to comment. If you, if you sin against somebody, go and apologize. I'll guarantee you, you do that a couple times. You're going to be more careful what you say about those other people. But again, I, I, might, I remind you, the Word of God tells us that we need to apologize except for to two individuals or groups. I don't have to apologize to my spouse, and I don't have to apologize to my kids. Right? Wrong. Wrong. And I can guarantee you, by a personal experience, when I've had to go back and apologize for things said, I was far more careful for a period of time. Not perfect, but more careful. You know what? I want to add it again. The internet comments that you get so upset, you get so frustrated, you just have to vent. And I'm going to hit that exclamation point. And I'm going to put all those other signs that I'm not cussing, but I'm going to put those signs in there. All you stupid people. Nobody's as good as I am. How does that fit into this text? It's communication. Put it off. Is this the way we believers are supposed to respond? Is this how we're supposed to act? Okay, I started off telling you about burying people wrong who are alive. Should I give you the gross one? Yeah. Ready? He didn't bury his dad who was dead. He kept him around for months so he could still get the benefits. Okay, I'm with you. Oh, that is so... The unsaved community looks and says, that is gross. That is terrible. When God looks at your life right now, when God watches what you're, sees what you're watching, does God say, that's gross. You're keeping around dead habits and behaviors that need to be buried. Do you remember? Mortify, therefore, your members. Bury it. Get it out of your life. Why? He's preeminent. Honor him this week.